turn with me to Genesis chapter 1. We're going to begin reading in verse 1, and I'm just going to read verses 1 and 2, as I did last week. And you're going to begin the morning feeling as if we're making no progress from week to week. But we are. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. This is the word of the Lord. Let's give thanks. Father, we are thankful that you have superintended by your Spirit through Moses the writing of your word for your people, the people of Israel as they came out of Egypt and headed to the promised land, and your people who trust in your Son in every age. May we hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Give us sharpness of mind this morning as we contemplate who you are as our creator and what it is that you've created. Guard our hearts and minds from error with regard to you. Guard my lips from the same. Cause us to be in awe, to rejoice in who you are and what you've done. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this morning we return to our study in Genesis And last week, as I introduced the book, I gave you a short overview of the book, and then I reminded you that the God who created all things is our triune Lord. Today, what I want to do is contemplate God as our creator as we look at Genesis 1-1. I'm going to warn you, there's going to be some language this morning. Not warning like you should have your kids leave the room because the language, not that sort of warning. But there's going to be some language this morning that I know may be foreign to some of you. But in order to contemplate God properly, we need language that helps us reason together from the Scriptures. I'm going to do my best to define, repeat, restate, and help you begin to grasp the vocabulary. If we want to shield ourselves from thoughts and speech that is too low and unbecoming of God... It's important that we learn and employ vocabulary that has helped us apprehend what is being said about God. I know as I get into some of this, some of you will think, this is too much for me. Chad, you're clearly much more intelligent than I am. I want to say that that's just not true. I'm the guy who maxed out at geometry in high school, took business math my junior year where I learned how to write checks. Some of you have finished calculus, your engineers, lawyers, doctors, I didn't even know what a prepositional phrase was until I was 26 years old. So that's true. It's not a matter of being smarter. It's a matter of spending the time learning things that you formerly didn't know. So this morning as we consider Genesis 1-1, I want to answer four questions. Here are the four questions. When did God create? That's the first question. Second, out of what did God create? So when did God create? First, second, out of what did God create? Third, what did God create? What did he create? So out of what did he create and what did he create are two separate questions. And fourth, what do we learn about our creator? And I'm not going to say all that we learn about our creator, but some lessons we learn about our creator from these really answering the first three questions. So let's look at those four questions. When did God create? When did he create? Look at Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, I'm going to spend two weeks on seven words, but there are seven words in the Hebrew that are 
foundational to the Christian faith that say so much more than I can possibly articulate in two weeks. So much more. In the beginning, when did God create? In the beginning, God created. He created in the beginning. Well, when was the beginning? When was the beginning? Well, the beginning was when he created all things. I know it sounds like I'm being a smart aleck. He created in the beginning. When was the beginning? When he created all things. But I'm not. Prior to God speaking creation into existence, there was no time. Rather, time is a package deal with creation, if you will. God did not, and God is not, experiencing time. He is eternal. God is, as they say, pure act. In other words, what that means is there's no potential for some new, to be really technical, for some new actuality of being in him. What do I mean by that? He cannot become something he was not or is not. He is. He's never becoming. He's never changing. He's never in motion. He's not one that can be measured. I don't mean that he's so huge that we lack the ability to measure him. I mean he is immeasurable. He's infinite and he's eternal. He is. There is no beginning nor is there an end with God. There is no succession of moments because there's no change or movement or becoming in God. But when God created, then time began. When God created the material, maybe I should say it this way. When God created, then we had the material that has potential. See, we have material that can and does move and change and become what it was not. So now there's something to measure. Thomas Aquinas, the medieval scholar, said it this way. Listen to this. Time is nothing else than the measure of priority and succession in movement. Well, there's no movement in God. God is. God is eternal. But creation is material and dependent and moves and changes. Creation becomes what it was not. One of the Puritan men who wrote a Bible commentary for every book of the Bible, many of you have probably have the volumes, Matthew Henry, said it this way. Time began, listen, when did time begin? Time began with the production of those beings that are measured by time. Before the beginning of time, there was none but that infinite being that inhabits eternity. So the beginning of time is concomitant with the birth of creation. They come together. So when did God create? In the beginning. That's the best thing we can say. There was no moment or succession of moments before the beginning. You guys follow that? There was no before the beginning as to a succession of moments. There was God, and God spoke, and creation and time came to be. When? In the beginning. That leads to our second question. You guys tracking with me so far? Second question. Out of what did God create? Out of what? What did he make stuff out of? Does God fashion the heavens and the earth out of some pre-existing material. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. But out of what? Let me give you an example. Brian Rice, many of you know him, is a member of our church. He's a home builder. He builds houses. Brian has an idea in his mind of what kind of home he wants to create. So he gets plans drawn for that idea. He then purchases the materials necessary, and he fashions them together to build the home. He's gone from an idea in his mind to the production of a home. And we often speak of that as creativity. Brian, if you go see his models, he's quite creative. They're beautiful. He has a creative mind, if you will. Brian creates a home. However, Brian did not create any of the materials 
necessary for the home. Brian didn't create the wood by which he built the home. Brian arranged the wood that nature produced. So when we say God created the heavens and the earth, I want to hear this. We do not mean he did so in the same manner that Brian creates a home out of existing material. We don't mean that. I want to carry the discussion even further. Even when we say that nature produced, for example, an oak tree by which we cut down and then fashioned into beams of wood, even when we say that nature produced an oak tree, we do not mean that nature called into being the material for the oak tree that was not yet in existence. We mean that nature in some way gave form to already existing material that's necessary for an oak tree to be. I hope you caught that. Even nature is giving form to already existing material. It isn't calling material to be out of nothing. We can abstract that back to the beginning of the universe. The scientists who postulate a Big Bang, and please track with me, I'm not arguing for a Big Bang. I want you to hear. The scientists who postulate a Big Bang, they speak of a point of singularity. What do they mean? A singular point at which, to be really simple and sort of crass, a singular point at which matter existed in a nearly infinitely dense Now, and listen to this part, an infinitely hot state. Then that matter exploded into expansion and created what we see over the course of, I think they postulate somewhere around 14 billion years or so. But even here, note that scientists must already have matter infinitely dense and matter in motion infinitely hot, for they know that something cannot come from nothing. They know that. But Moses is telling you something utterly different than all of that. He's telling you that God created everything ex nihilo. He created everything out of nothing. He's telling you that God is the first cause of all things that are. And we don't mean by that that he's merely the first cause, like he set off a chain of cause and effect, but that he is the explanation of all things that are. There was once when there was nothing in creation, then God spoke. And the universe came to be. He created all things out of nothing. Now how do we know that's true? How do we know that God created everything ex nihilo? Out of nothing. Well we know that on the basis of special revelation. And only on the basis of special revelation. We know that only on the basis of scripture. There was nothing. And in the beginning God created all things that are. God created by speaking all things into being. Listen to this from Hebrews 11.3. By faith... We understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of the things that are visible. Again, I want you to hear what Aquinas said. Now, Thomas Aquinas is known for having great regard for natural revelation, but he made this very point when he said, here's his quote, by faith alone do we hold, and by no demonstration can it be proved. In other words, you can't go out in nature and prove it by demonstration. By faith alone do we hold that the world did not always exist See, we can learn about God by nature and scripture. However, there are some things we can only know by scripture. Creation ex nihilo is one of those truths we only know by scripture. We know he created out of nothing because the Bible tells us so. Created out of nothing. We know from scripture that God did not merely take existing materials and give it the form that we see today. God is not a creature who, at best like nature, merely gives form to some pre-existing material. I want you to hear this, saints. From eternity, God called the very material of all things into being, and he formed it into what we now see. God is, and God created out of nothing all that is. 
John Gill, the Baptist preacher, rightly said it this way, creation's being is not owing to the fortuitous motion and conjunction of atoms, but where's creation's being owing to? The power and wisdom of God, the first cause and sole author of all things. Here's what I'm trying to drive at, Sovereign Grace. Our triune Lord spoke from eternity and creation and time came to be out of nothing in the beginning. So that leads to our third question. What did God create? He created in the beginning and he created all things out of nothing. But what do we mean by that? Look at verse one again. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The heavens is plural for a reason, but this is a Hebrew merism. In other words, the heavens, the sky above that the birds fly in, that the clouds float in, the heavens above that, the starry sky of the night, and even the heaven of heavens, what Paul calls the third heaven, where the angels are, if you will. He created the heavens and the earth. In other words, all things. The heavens and the earth are parts that describe the whole. And this language is intentionally used to say that God created all things. Look at Genesis 14. Keep your hand there. And verse 19. Melchizedek, king of Salem, is coming to Abram and having bread and wine with him. He's a priest of Most High God coming from Jerusalem. I'm not going to get into what we know about him because Hebrews 7 tells us not much other than this. Verse 19, and Melchizedek blesses Abram, and he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God most high, notice the language, possessor, can also be translated creator, of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. He is the possessor, the creator of heaven and earth. God created all things, the heavens and the earth that we see, and the heaven that we do not see. The third heaven, the heaven of heavens. How do I know that? Look at Colossians chapter 1. Keep your hand in Genesis 1. And look at Colossians, New Testament, Colossians chapter 1. If you're not familiar with your New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts. Then you get to Romans. Then First and Second Corinthians. Then Galatians and Ephesians and Philippians and Colossians. Colossians chapter 1. Russell read this text to us this morning. It's also in your, oh, it's not in your bulletin, just the verse references. But he, speaking of the beloved son, he is the image of the invisible God, verse 15, the firstborn of all creation. Now look expressly at verse 16. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things and in him, all things hold together. In the beginning, God created all things visible and invisible. This accounts for the creation of heaven, not just our sky or space, but heaven. This accounts for the creation of the angels. When God speaks, if you will, in Genesis 1, when we get this phrase, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He created all things. We'll get into that some more next week. But that includes heaven and the angels. This is why the angels can be present Shouting for joy at the foundation of the earth. Job says this in Job 38, verse 4 through 7. Just listen. As God is rebuking Job for things Job can't possibly know. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. You can hear the sarcasm, right? It can be godly to be sarcastic. It can also be ungodly to be sarcastic. But when God is sarcastic, it's always godly. Or who stretched the line upon it? 
On what were its bases sunk, or who laid its cornerstone, when the morning stars sang together? Now listen, this last phrase is a reference to angels in the book of Job. And all the sons of God shouted for joy. See, Job was not there, and neither were we. But in the beginning, God created the angels, and they got to see him in some manner laying the foundation of the earth. And in the face of that work, what they saw, when they saw it, they shouted for joy at the power and wisdom and goodness of God. And so should we. So should we. We should join the angels and sing, all creatures of our God and King, lift up your voice and with us sing, Alleluia, Alleluia. Let all things their creator bless and worship him in humbleness. Oh, praise him. And this leads to implications regarding what we learn about God. What do we learn about our creator from all of this? What do we learn about him from all of this? Well, we learn more than I have time to say this morning, (laughs) far more than I have time to say this morning. Fundamentally, we need to understand that Moses is recording this for Israel after they come out of the exodus from Egypt and head toward the promised land. And Moses wants Israel to know that the God of the exodus is not like the creaturely gods of the ancient Near East, the creaturely gods, the idols of Mesopotamia or Egypt. He's not like them. He is God and there is no other. He wants them to know that. So for the sake of time, I want to limit our contemplation to four truths we learn about God. Here's the first one. First, God is not one of many. He is one. He is one. There is no God besides him. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God. The Lord is one. Look at Isaiah. Keep your hand in Genesis. Look at Isaiah 45. If you're not sure where it is, it's nearly dead center of your Bible. Well, I would say that, except if you have lots of study notes that skew the placement, maybe it's not. But generally, nearly dead center. Isaiah 45, and look at verse 5. I am the Lord, and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me, that people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none besides me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Drop down to verse 18 of Isaiah 45. For thus says the Lord who created the heavens, he is God, who formed the earth and made it. He established it. He did not create it empty. He formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord and there is no other. Look down at verse 22. Turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth, for I am God, and there is no other. Is the message being made clear? He's God. There is no other. He created the heavens and the earth. It's him. Second, so the first thing we need to know is God is God, and there is no other. One God. Second, God is not created or birthed from things that were before him, as with the ancient Near Eastern gods. They're created as some material. They're birthed from things that were before them. He's not a creature. Listen, there was never a time when he was not. There's no principle more fundamental than him. He's not made from some material. He's immaterial, uncreated, always being. Look at Psalm 90 and verse 1. This is a prayer of Moses, the man of God. Don't know if you've paid much attention to that, but it seems that the Psalter is written over a period of nearly a thousand years. 
from Moses in circa 1400 BC, 1500 BC, to when they're in Babylon and after in circa 500 BC, 400 BC. A prayer of Moses, the man of God. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you would form the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. It's always been. He is God and there is no other. He's always been. And all the so-called creaturely gods of the pagans are just worthless idols. Look at Psalm 96. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord. Bless his name. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods, you might say, oh, are there lots of gods? Listen, for all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols. But the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. He is God and all the other so-called gods are worthless idols. You notice God is not a pluralist. America is pluralistic. We let all kinds of gods, if you will, be worshipped here. But God is not a pluralist, and God's church is not to go out and preach pluralism. Believe whatever you'll believe. It's to go out and declare that your gods are worthless, that this God alone is God, and he alone saves. It's not a message the world wants to hear a lot. Don't you think my religion's virtuous? Nope. It's worthless. Likely blasphemous. He's God. There are no others. He's not like the gods of the ancient Near East. Third, third lesson, God should not be confused with creatures. There is a radical, by radical I don't mean like some kind of whipped up passionate sort of thing. There is a radical at the root creator and creature distinction. Look at Acts 17. Paul goes to speak in Athens. Acts chapter 17. In your New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts. Acts 17. Let's look first at when Paul arrives in Athens. Verse 16. Now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens... His spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. He's provoked when he sees that the city is full of idols. And by idols, it doesn't just mean people are, you know, worshiping materialism. They're actual physical idols, statues. He sees them and his spirit's provoked with him. He doesn't come in and say, oh, such great liberation. They're worshiping all sorts of gods. He's provoked. And then we go down to verse 22. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, men of Athens... I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. He's not a statue. You can't contain him in a building. He made you. He gave you life and breath and everything. And he made, verse 26, from one man, every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he's not actually far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. In God is all the fullness of being. But you're a creature. 
everything that has been made is creature. You received your being from another. In him you live and move and have your being. You're dependent and you move from one moment to the next, ever-changing, with no control over something as small as your next breath. Let me do an exercise. Take a deep breath in and exhale. That was a gift. Contemplate that. That was God's good gift. God created that. God presently sustains that. In him you live and move and have your being. You're dependent. You receive your being from another. God is. He does not receive his being from anyone or anything. He is. He created all things, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. That's why when things are troubled, we can sing, this is my father's world. Oh, let me ne'er forget that though the wrong seems oft so strong, God is the ruler yet. This is my father's world. The battle is not done. Jesus who died shall be satisfied and earth and heaven shall be won. Fourth, God is not needy or lonely or lacking something. When I was young, learning what a prepositional phrase was in my mid-20s, I'm not kidding. I went to seminary at 26. I took a Greek class and I said, oh, that's what a prepositional phrase is. In Greek, I learned English grammar. If you've learned Greek and you didn't learn English grammar growing up, you understand exactly what I mean. But at that time in my life, there was a show on called Touched by an Angel. And I regret to tell you I watched it. A lot of it. And during one episode, this angel played by this lady named Roma Downey, she is talking to someone and they ask her a question about why God made us and does all that he does. And the angel's response was, well, God was lonely, so he created you, so he'd have someone to love. And I remember hearing that and still being somewhat, I mean, a professing Christian, but intellectually probably quite the heretic. And I heard that and thought to myself, that can't be right. And it's not right. It's deeply errant. God did not create things that came to be in order to fulfill some lack of perfection in himself. He was not seeking to gratify his own base desires for food or sex or anything else like the pagan gods. For God lacks nothing. In some sense, we can look at Genesis 1 as a polemic against Egyptian gods, against ancient Near Eastern gods. Those gods are puny and needy and created, false worthless idols. But God lacks nothing. He does not gain from the creation. He's not improved by it or made better by it. He doesn't lack being in some way without the creation. God is perfect being. He doesn't add something to his being when things are created. There is no lack. Please hear this. There is no improvement. There is no potential for something better. There is no becoming. You guys remember when you were kids, if you're anything like me, Oh, he's got a lot of potential. You guys hear that? Some of you were hard workers, so you never heard that. You were like maxing your potential. I was minimizing my potential, just skating by. And every parent-teacher meeting was about the potential he has. God has no potential. I know it sounds odd to say that, but he is. God is not the receiver of his action of creation. God is only the perfect agent of his creation. We are the recipients. 
It doesn't belong to the perfect God to receive some new good that somehow he lacked prior to creation. Again, listen to what Aquinas said, and I think so helpfully, and you'll get the point of this. He alone is the most perfectly liberal giver. He doesn't mean liberal in the political sense, like someone who just wants to give out government stuff. That's not his point. He alone is the most perfectly liberal giver because he does not act for his own profit, but only for his own goodness. In other words, God spoke all things into being out of nothing, only to the end that he communicates his perfection, his wisdom, his goodness to us, who are made in the likeness of that divine goodness. That's what Moses is trying to communicate to Israel as God is bringing them out of Egypt. Our God is not like the false Egyptian deities. He was not created out of something. He's not one of many. He's not needy or dependent. He's not seeking some good for himself from the creature. He is. And he called all things to be that once were not. And he did all that for us. Not for himself. For us. He's not seeking his own benefit. Listen, God needs no benefit from his actions. For he is fully and perfectly beneficent. He needs no good added to him. For he is fully and perfectly good. He is goodness. That's why Paul can ask, who's given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Listen, Moses is saying to Israel, God is the perfectly liberal giver who hears our cries, who's come to redeem us from slavery to Pharaoh, who's come to take us to the promised land, who's come to redeem us. He created us to be good to us, and he redeems us to be good to us. He gets no gain from it. When we speak of God as being a perfectly liberal giver, we're speaking of his benevolence. And out of that benevolence or goodness, his love to us. It was this love by which he chose to create all things that he also chose to redeem those who would rebel against him. It was in love that he sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And it is through faith in his son, our Lord Jesus Christ, that we're saved. The God who created you also redeemed you in Christ. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Listen, the God who created all things in love, in love sent his son to save us from the wrath deserved by us for our sin. Herein is love. Not that we first loved God, but that he first loved us. And gave his son as a propitiation, a wrath satisfier for our sins. See, are you looking to Christ? I don't know if everyone in the room is a believer, but God created you because he's good. Gets no benefit from it. He did it for your good. You rebelled against him. A God who was nothing but good to man, we rebelled against. And God, in that same goodness, decreed to save us in his son. Are you looking to him? Christ went to the cross to pay for your sins so that you'd be forgiven. Are you trusting him? If so, then we together join the heavenly choir, the choir composed of angels and all the elect, all those among men ransomed by the blood of the lamb from every tribe and tongue and nation. And we sing, we join that choir and we sing, worthy are you, our Lord and God to receive glory and honor and power 
for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Amen. Let me pray. Father, we are thankful for your Son. We are thankful that you have created us, that in the face of our rebellion, you have redeemed us in your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. May we trust in him. May we always remember that you are our creator, our sustainer, provider, and our redeemer. May we praise you. Cause us to speak of you and your works far and wide so that many will believe and be saved to the praise of your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.